0: Good morning. It's a great privilege and honor to have the opportunity to bring God's word to you all today. I'm certainly not usually one for nerves, but this is a unique and different experience for me. Westminster has been my home church for most of my life. I grew up in this church as a small child, went away to Texas for a while and then came back and this was the church of my teen years and then Right up to this present day. I, like many of you, owe a great debt of gratitude to this place, and particularly to Pastor Vance, who was and still to this day continues to be a great mentor to me. I remember the first time a few years ago that I was going to preach. I was going to go preach down at Billy Spanger's Church, Affirmation Presbyterian Church in Somers. And I was very nervous then, too. I'd done a lot of public speaking, but I never preached before. And you're dealing with holy things here, so I was nervous. And I asked Pastor Vance for some advice and he gave me the most simple advice of all time. But coming from Pastor Vance in his calm southern voice and based on the esteem with which I held the man, it was simplistically eloquent and beautiful. He said to me, Justin, just give him Jesus. (laughs) Pretty good advice. Now, Believe it or not, I've, Gleaned a few things from the current pastor here at Westminster as well over the years. And uh, the two things that stick out the most that I've learned from your pastor and my father is, one, that the uh, sermon should be exceedingly long. (laughs) I got that, so buckle up. Um, And second of all, that it should probably be from the book of Revelation. (laughs) I did did not do that. Um, All kidding aside... I won't be preaching from Revelation, but the text that you heard today, Ezekiel chapter 1, does mirror the book of Revelation in many ways, um, in such a way that our recent study of that book should help elucidate this text and make it more clear. So I'd encourage all of you to have your Bibles open to Ezekiel chapter 1. If you would, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1, as I'll be referencing the passage throughout. Now this remarkable vision that was just read in Ezekiel chapter 1, is the inaugural event of Ezekiel's glorious, difficult, and many times very, very strange ministry. Ezekiel is one of the stranger ministries that you'll ever see. We see in the very first verse of Ezekiel 1 that this is the 30th year, which almost all scholars believe is a reference to Ezekiel's age. He's just turned 30 years old. And that's an important birthday for Ezekiel. And not just because that's the age when you start to sound old. And I turned thirty pretty recently, and it was the first time that hearing my my age, I was like, "Man, I'm an old guy now." When I was young, you know, as a teenager, I thought of thirty years as being very old. Uh, But that's not the importance here. Um, The age thirty is important because we find out in numbers four that it's at the age of thirty that those that are called to the priesthood would begin their priestly duties. And Ezekiel is a priest. And his father, Buzi, was a priest as well. So at the age of 30, priests begin their priestly duty. We found that also in our gospel reading today, in Luke 3. Jesus, our great, final, and fully sufficient high priest, he began his earthly priestly ministry at the age of 30. So it's important, the age here. It's not just a throwaway verse. Now we know a remarkable amount about Ezekiel. We know more about Ezekiel than almost any of the other major or minor prophets. Ezekiel was born in 622. He lived in and around Jerusalem. And as a priest in training, he would have spent a remarkable amount of time in the temple. Now, the temple was a source of incredible pride for the people of Judah. It was where God's presence, his glory, his power resided in a unique, different, and powerful way. For many of the Jews, we all know that the temple was a foundation upon which a mountain of unwarranted pride and superiority was built. Now, it's important to keep in mind that just 100 years before the birth of Ezekiel, so Ezekiel is born in 622, but 100 years before that in 722, Assyria has just gathered up power and crushed and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. But that would never happen to Judah. They had the temple. God was dwelling with them, or so the people of Judah thought. We all know better. Of course, that was not true. As Ezekiel was growing up in and around Jerusalem, in and around the temple, Babylon was growing and consolidating power. And in 597, when Ezekiel was 25 years old, Babylon conquered Judah and Jerusalem, and Ezekiel was ripped from his homeland and taken into exile. So that's where we meet Ezekiel. We meet Ezekiel here in our text, a man who had trained for the priesthood for the first 25 years of his life in Jerusalem, in Judah, in and around the temple. But here on his 30th birthday, he is in exile, torn from his homeland. He's in a foreign land. He's in captivity. He's far from Zion, far from the temple. And so he thought, far from the presence of God. He's in an unclean land full of idolaters, where he is mocked and ridiculed for his beliefs. And because of this grave situation, on his 30th birthday, he's not called to be a priest. But instead, Ezekiel is called now to be a prophet. So he trained for the priesthood, but now he's called to be a prophet. For Ezekiel's 30th birthday gift, he receives this intense and powerful vision that we just read. On my 30th birthday, I got a shed. It's a nice shed. It's a nice shed. Um, Not quite the same. Now, this vision that we read in Ezekiel chapter 1 is so graphic and violently powerful that it left Ezekiel shaken for an entire week. We read that later in Ezekiel 3.15. This is what Ezekiel 3.15 says. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Kebar. And I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. So he sees this vision and he's dumbfounded for a week. The vision given here in Ezekiel chapter 1 is so weighty that the majority of Jewish traditions refuse to read it. They won't even read it out of a sense of reverence for the text. Now, not only is the vision weighty and difficult, it's very, very hard to decipher many times as we've seen through the study of the book of Revelation, is the case with a lot of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is difficult to decipher. Calvin says of this passage, and this should make us a little bit worried, he says, if someone asks whether the vision is clear, I confess it is very obscure, and I do not profess to understand any of it. Calvin then goes on to extrapolate the text. So, Now, understanding this vision is difficult in large part because Ezekiel himself is having trouble understanding it. We find Ezekiel in our text here sort of fumbling and bumbling his way, trying to explain an event that just shook him to the very core. We see later in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, after getting a chance to regain his wits, Ezekiel gives a more calm version of this vision. Now, today I want to explore the remarkable vision in order to unpack its meaning for both Ezekiel and those he is preaching to. Remember, he's preaching to those in captivity in Babylon, those that have been ripped out of Judah. But he's also preaching to the Jews who were left back in Jerusalem. Some, some remain. But I also want to unpack the vision for us. What does Ezekiel 1 mean for us, for the church? So the vision starts in verse 1, with Ezekiel telling us that the heavens opened and I saw a vision. What exactly it looks like for the heavens to part is open to the imagination. But there's certainly a symbolic significance to the phrase. The heavens being parted is symbolic of the barrier between heaven and earth, between God and man being dissolved. Ezekiel is about to encounter the sovereign Lord of the cosmos in a unique, close, imminent, and immediate way. So after the heavens are torn open, we are told in verse 3, that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Now, if you're paying attention to the text, you might note that the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel is much more than a simple auditory hearing. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel in such a way that would affect all of his senses. It would be absorbed into his very being. Encountering the word of God is an experience that engulfs the whole world. Unified, cohesive human being, both body and soul, mind and spirit. When we encounter the Word of God, or as I should say, when the Word of God encounters us here in corporate worship, it encounters us all auditorily for certain, right? You all hear the Word of God preached. But that's not the only way it encounters us. The living Word encounters us and affects us intellectually, it affects us emotionally, it affects us psychologically. And it affects us physiologically as well, right? In corporate worship, where we come to encounter God in a unique way, just as Ezekiel did, we stand, we sit, we kneel, we shake hands, we sing songs, we eat bread, we drink wine, right? It's a physiological and cognitive engulfment of the whole unified person. Worship is not a passive auditory-only activity, that's why one has to come prepared for worship. This is a contact sport. Later on in Ezekiel 3.3, 3, God literally has Ezekiel eat a scroll. He eats a scroll which tastes as sweet as honey on the lips of the prophet. So with all that being said, the word of God coming to us is much more than simply hearing. So the word of God comes to Ezekiel and how exactly does it come to him? comes to him in a storm. This is how God appeared to Job in Job 38. Right? The Lord appeared to Job out of the whirlwind. It's how he appeared to Moses when he gives him the law on Sinai in a storm. God descends in a massive storm at the end of the book of Exodus to fill the tabernacle with his presence. The experience in our text here fits this same pattern. Now this storm in Ezekiel is raging with fire. It's going inwards and outwards. It's self engulfing. It's a horrifying, horrifying picture. And it's in the midst of this storm that Ezekiel receives a vision of what many scholars now call the chariot throne of God. The chariot throne of God, and that's why the sermon is called the chariot throne of God. Now, this chariot has four major components it has the four living creatures, it has the wheels beneath the four living creatures the crystal platform above the living creatures, and then the throne of God that sits on the crystal platform. So I want to take a step back so everyone has some sort of a mental image of what's going on here. Crazy wheels, four creatures, crystal platform above the creatures, throne of God sitting on the crystal platform. Throne, platform, creatures, wheels. Now I want to quickly examine each of these four components. So the first thing we come to are these four living creatures. Ezekiel later tells us in the book, in Ezekiel 10.20, that these four creatures were cherubim. Now, if your mind works anything like my mind, the first thing that pops into your head when you hear cherubim are those adorable little chubby babies that fly around God and the angels in all the Renaissance paintings. Now, nobody likes adorable things as much as I do. I'm the the king of adorability. But this is certainly not the biblical picture of cherubim. These cherubs are ferocious, half-man, half-beast mutants. They have the legs of a man and hoofed feet. They have four wings and four heads, one looking in each direction. They are frightening, frightening creatures. Something out of a sadistic horror film. So if a biblical scholar, a theologian, or your pastor tells you that your child is a cherub, <laughs> let's take that with a grain of salt. Now, these cherubim all had four faces. If you're paying attention to the text, they had four faces. They had the face of a man, of a lion, of an ox, and of an eagle. Man, lion, ox, eagle. Now, what is it that all these four things have in common? Man, lion, ox, eagle. Well, they all have power and dominion. Man is obviously, has dominion over all the beasts. The lion is the king of all the land beasts. The ox is the king of the domesticated animals. And the eagle is the chief bird of the air, ruling the sky. So these cherubim are powerful, dominant beings. We also see here this repetition of numbers, which is a common marking of the apocalyptic genre. And the number repeating here is four. Four living creatures. Four wings and four faces, standing at all four corners of the throne. Faces facing in all four directions. Four, 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 four. This is surely a symbolic representation that this God who comes riding in on the storm is sovereignly and powerfully in control of the four corners of the globe. He is completely and sovereignly in control of everything. So secondly, we come to these wheels. The prophet tells us that beneath the cherubim, there are four wheels, but these aren't ordinary run-of-the-mill wheels. In verse 16... Ezekiel tells us that they were like wheels within a wheel. Now, Ezekiel's vision here is actually the genesis of the phrase wheels within wheels, which has become part of the common parlance of Western civilization, right? If somebody says something is like wheels within wheels, they're saying that it's convoluted, it's confusing, it's difficult. Now, this text is certainly that, convoluted, confusing, difficult. But the emphasis on these wheels within wheels is not the fact that they're confusing, But it's on the fact that this God who comes riding on the storm, he is unrestricted in his movement, wheels within wheels. He can go wherever he wants. He can go wherever he pleases. He doesn't have to make U-turns. We must remember here, and it's important when you're thinking about these wheels, remember that Ezekiel is going to be preaching and prophesying to those in captivity in Babylon. Those Jews who thought so highly of themselves because they had the temple. God would never abandon them because He was right there physically with them in the temple. Now, this vision brings a harsh indictment on that line of thinking. Israel's God, your God, cannot be domesticated. Remember where the vision is happening God is appearing in Babylon, He shows up in the land of exile in the land of the idolaters, in the land of the pagans. Now, in the ancient Near East, the question of where sovereignty resided was a perennial and very significant political issue. Who has authority? Who has power? Now, in a monarchically organized community, the king is the decision maker. The king has the power. But the people to whom Ezekiel is going to be prophesying, they've lost their king. King Jehoiachin. He's gone. Babylon has won. A key part of Ezekiel's ministry was trying to convince the Jews that Yahweh still functioned as their king even when his earthly representative was no longer in authority. Right With the deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon, it appeared that the deity of Nebuchadnezzar, Marduk, the Babylonian god, ruled over Judah, not Yahweh the concrete, physical, tangible symbol of the Lord's sovereignty. The temple was gone, and so was Yahweh. But here in Ezekiel's inaugural vision, the cherubim throne that was in the temple in Jerusalem has been spiritualized, transposed, and mobilized. Ezekiel's vision, it accents and emphasizes the invisible but still very real, spiritualized, political power of the covenant God of Israel. Ezekiel's vision accentuates the non-localized political dominion of your God. The covenant God of Israel reigns even in the midst of earthly chaos and political turbulence. Our God reigns even when our immediate political situation is fraught with instability, violence, violence backstabbing, and injustice. Now, worshiping this type of God, it requires fresh eyes and a clean heart in order to avoid conflating Yahweh's power with some localized, idolatrous place, form, political party, or governmental structure. The sovereign God of the universe goes where he pleases, he rides on the back of the storm, and he reigns in the midst of earthly chaos. Now, notice if you would back in our text that although these four living creatures are set on these incredible wheels within wheels that provide for unrestricted movement, the wheels and the cherubim do not and cannot move on their own. Right? We see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go. We see the same thing in verse 20. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went. Because there the spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So these four powerful living creatures and these incredible wheels within wheels are unmovable, useless, dead, without the spirit. What a true and beautiful vision. It's the spirit of God that moves his throne. It's the same spirit, the spirit of the ascended and risen Jesus, that makes dead men live. It's the spirit of God that changes hearts, and it's the spirit of God that transforms that bound book of words in your lap into a living, breathing fire of hope where we encounter God in his glory and majesty. Now, as we proceed through the vision, we next encounter what we can call the platform upon which the throne of God sits. Look at this in verse 22. This is the platform we get in verse 22. Verse 22 reads, The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal, stretched out over their heads. So Ezekiel sees a crystal expanse or a dome, something of the sorts. Many scholars here note the similarity between this crystal platform and the sea of glass that's stretched out before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. Now, the fact that the platform was crystal... So think about this. Ezekiel's looking up, he sees wheels, he sees these living creatures, and then above them there's this crystal platform. The fact that the platform is crystal means that Ezekiel would be able to see through it to what appears to be a throne resting above it. But you don't see through crystal the way that you would see through glass. Looking through crystal would distort or blur the vision of the prophet. Now, a careful reader of Ezekiel chapter 1 would note that as Ezekiel progresses up the vision, there is a progressive loss of detail. As he ascends up the vision, there's this loss of detail because he's starting to describe the glory of God. Something that no man is fit to do, not even a prophet. Now, notice if you would in verse 26. Look at verse 26. That resting on top of this platform is not a throne, but rather the likeness of a throne. And as Ezekiel ascends even higher in verse 26, he sees a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Pay attention to the words there. Right? Notice what's going on. When describing the throne there is a, or describing the throne, there's a single distortion, right? The likeness of a throne. But here, when he's trying to describe the glory of God, or God seated on the throne, we get a double distortion. The appearance of a likeness of a man. That's like saying, I saw the picture of a shadow of a person. Right? This language, it stresses the paradoxical tension that makes up the entirety of the Christian faith. God is immediately, imminently, and directly in front of Ezekiel, and yet unknowable. Our whole belief system, all of Christianity, is wrought and full of these tensions that pull us in varying directions. God is a being, and we are beings made in his image, but he's still fully and completely other. What What does that look like? Our God is three, but he is one. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man. God's all just, demanding complete purity, but full of love and Steadfast mercy. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep comes back to judge the world, soaked in the blood of his enemies? You are saved by faith. You're judged by your works. The Christian life is one of a tugging tension, and this tension should cause us to be limber and not rigid. These tensions should be broadening us. Your faith requires nuance and diversity of thought. So we should not be monochromatic in our biblical pursuits, our biblical passions, our biblical interests. We all know those people. Those people only seem to care about that one sticking point issue for them. The Bible revolves around that one thing that they care about. Whether that be their view of the eschaton, the style of music that you have in worship. One of the five points of Calvinism. One of the solas even. Now, I'm by no means, hear me, I'm by no means deriding the pursuit of theological purity. I advocate for the pursuit of theological purity. All I am doing is advocating for an evenly diversified biblical portfolio of loves. Your faith is a broad faith, so love broadly. Your faith is a thinking man's faith, so think deeply. These tensions are difficult. And they require charity, humility, and careful attention. You don't live in a simple world. And Christianity is not a simple faith. As G.K. Chesterton so brilliantly stated, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and then left untried. Here in Ezekiel's vision, as we get to this image of the likeness of a man, The tension is between the fact that God is fully sympathetic towards our plight, as seen in the Incarnation, but he is still fully and completely other. God's presence here in Babylon is this joyous occasion, as we see that he was not bound to his temple, but he's with his people wherever they may be. But notice how his presence comes. It comes on the back of a storm. He appears as a self-engulfing fire. His presence, while bringing hope, it brings judgment. God's throne room isn't clad with pastel yellows and baby blues and lollipops. God loves us. He loves us as his sons and his daughters. But he is our holy father. He's not our buddy, he's not our pal. You don't chum around with radiant fire. So when Ezekiel finally sees this vision, what is his response? He fell on his face. It's exactly how John reacts in Revelation 1 when John receives his vision. He fell down as if dead. Encountering God is a grave and serious issue. That is why worship must be approached with a sense of reverence and dignity. It is here, right here, that in a unique way, we encounter the word of God communally as his people that he has sought out of the world. He comes to us right here in Babylon. He comes to us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our corrupt and despicable culture, in the midst of our idolatrous lives. He comes to all of us in the midst of our disordered passions and our disordered desires. And here in this place, we communally hear his word, which is made mobile and alive by the spirit of the ascended Jesus. An encounter with this God, just like Ezekiel's encounter, does not allow you to leave unchanged. The living word of God is always either condemning you or purifying you. It is never inert. It's never neutral. So just as Ezekiel and John did, let us fall before this glorious God and praise him for keeping his covenant promises. Praise him for his omnipotent power and his grand mobility. Praise him for bringing us out of exile, out of Babylon, and into his fold. Praise him because although the temple was destroyed, the temple rose again. Amen.